1: Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have a very fun episode with actor and playwright and theater co-founder, co-director, Sam Hood Adrian. You know, that's one heck of a multi-hyphenate there. Actor, hyphen, playwright, hyphen... Co-founder slash co direct I mean, that's so many hyphens. Very impressive guy. Sam co-founded What Will the Neighbors Say and is doing great work there. And we have a really great chat about it all. Let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Sam Hood Adrian. Sam, thanks so much for being on the podcast.
0: My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. I don't know if we can mention what we've worked on. <laughs> together that we ended up meeting but it was you know always fun chatting with you during that
0: I think we can say that we were on a selection panel for a grant and ended up talking about a bunch of artistic work and, and we ended up like agreeing on a lot of a <laughs> yeah. lot of stuff
1: yeah we did we like pretty instantly I was like okay someone else is on my same wavelength there was like someone else there who I felt we were all on the same wavelength I about too. Yeah. I liked everyone and and agreed with with you know I think everyone was kind of agreeing in agreement on everything but we we the three of us were really on a wavelength together it was like ah oh, okay good good. Yeah
0: in my memory I think there was really only one vote that was split and the rest of them were like more or less <laughs> unanimous which I've I've panelled for a number of organizations and opportunities and that almost never happened so that was really oh, wow. it was cool to like be on the same wavelength with like complete strangers yeah yeah i don't know if we get too many
1: examples or opportunities to feel like we're on the same wavelength with a bunch of strangers nowadays yeah for real <laughs> especially when the internet is involved because we were all meeting over zoom so it's like it's, usually when you get online you're not agreeing with the stuff that you see Like the exact opposite reason of going on, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) No, but that was a lot of fun. It was my first time being on a panel like that, so it was really interesting to learn about grant writing and you know, like putting together an application for a grant and what it's like for the people who are making the decisions. It was really an interesting because I've I've never even applied for a grant, so it was really interesting to uh, see.
0: Yeah, I do it whenever I get the opportunity to panel on anything. I've been on like selection committees where you don't panel, you just read applications. I've been on panel processes and I mostly do it because I do a lot of grant writing and it just makes me a better grant writer. Not only understand like, okay, here's what other people are doing. I like that. I don't like that. Oh my God, I've done that. And now that I'm reading it, it's so unclear, but also it gives you the insight of like, what parts of an application are are the panelists or or selection people drawn to? Because I know, at least on the panel we were on, there were certain topics that were always like, this is the sticking point. And obviously that changes opportunity to opportunity. But as someone who applies between my myriad of artistic jobs, probably to over a hundred grants a year, it really is helpful to be like, okay, people really care about, community that you're serving. People really care about what is the makeup of your board. People really care about how well can you articulate the thing that you're trying to do, as opposed to like, they cared less about what you've done before. They cared less about, you know, who the other collaborators are. And obviously that changes opportunity to opportunity, but I mostly do it as a learning opportunity for myself.
1: Right. You know, that was like one of the things, we did have to look for was how skilled people were, like how committed to their craft. And there was no one who didn't get highest marks on that. You know, yeah. Like, so when I, before I started looking at applications, I was like, oh, maybe they're going to be some stinkers. But then you start looking at applications. It was like, well, of
0: course they all know what they're doing. <laughs> I feel like if you're, ta- I mean, it, that one in particular, but if you're taking the time to put together a robust application i think you have to really care about that because it's a lot it's a lot of time to put something yeah. like that yeah and you said you do like a hundred a year yeah so i have like a bunch a bunch of different jobs but i so i founded a theater company in mm-hmm. 2016 called what will the neighbors say yeah, and yeah. in that capacity as the artistic director there, co-artistic director i'm applying for grants at all levels you know federal state foundation local random opportunities and then I'm also the fundraising consultant and grant writer for Chicken Shed NYC, which is an all-inclusive youth theater company. Mm-hmm. Um, so between those two orgs, I'm submitting a lot of grant. I mean, I submit maybe, I don't know, five to ten a month between the two of them. So wow. I'm doing a lot of this kind of this kind of work. And then do a lot of, like, one of my other jobs this is an outbound um, fundraiser for MCC Theater, like calling folks over the phone. And I love that job. I'm really good at it. And it is, you know, I hate the term survival job as an artist, but like it's it's sort of where I make the bulk of my money. Mm-hmm. And coming out of COVID, I, you know, before the pandemic, I was a caterer and I was a mm-hmm. stand-in for film and television. was kind of my main gig. And I was like, you know, I'm coming up on 10 years living in New York. Mm-hmm. I, I came here to be an artist, to be in the theater world, to be an actor, a director, a producer. I don't want to do anything that is not related to those related to that field in some way shape or form for money and so really made that a goal of mine to like drop the catering and I still do an odd like I work for an event company so I'll do like some admin for them every now and then most of mm-hmm. they pay really well but 98% of my work is now somehow in the theater field whether that's administration directing producing I do a lot of like freelance producer for hire so if like someone has an idea or a show and they have the money but they don't have like the infrastructure to actually make it happen, I come in and sort of like line produce for them.
1: Wow, yeah. So you mentioned you have a, a lot of jobs and mm-hmm. that typically means you've done a lot of things before moving to New York. So I, I, you went to Tisch though, when
0: you, when you went to NYU Tisch, but before yeah. then, were you doing a lot in high school? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Providence, Rhode Island. Still love Providence. When I was growing up, it was still sketchy, I guess. Yeah. It was still like finding, it's, finding itself. But now oh. it's like super cool. Mm-hmm. So much great food, so much great art. So I was in my first play when I was eight. And I, you know, had my first professional job when I was 12. And by the time I was in high school, I was doing like 13 plays a year. I was in a repertory touring company that used to do i used to get pulled out of not pulled out i would go out of school to tour to other schools to do a anti-bullying school musical in which i played the bully because i'm six five right (laughs) i was you know 275 pounds so i was like the classic like I'm such a softy, but I was like, the class, <laughs> like, I looked like a bully. You can like just pick pick a power pose and you can <laughs> just be menacing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> I, I did a lot in high school. I mean, it used to be like I would go to school and then after school, I would either go to acting class at Trinity Repertory Company. I used to do like three classes a week there, or I would go to rehearsal and somewhere in there I would do my homework. But I've known for a long time that I like wanted to be in the theater world for a long time. You know, I thought I just wanted to be an actor. I still love acting. I still love being on stage. I still do, you know, I do film and television work and, and acting as well. But you're um,
1: playwright. You're a playwright and, you know, like you're the co yeah. artistic director. Yeah.
0: I mean, like uh, multi hyphenate, I think is the, right. the term that really feels like it fits for me.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know what you're saying because when we first get the you know, get bit by the bug to become actors. That is our focus is like, I want, well, I want to act. I don't want to do other things. I want to act. And we know that directors and producers and writers exist, but we're just really inspired at that time by the acting. But once you get involved and you start doing more, then you get bit by more bugs and you don't realize it. And so there could be this fight in your mind of like, should I do these other things? Because what I wanted to be was an actor. And also your mind telling yourself, wait a second, like you're just getting better at this world. So do the other things. Like when you were a kid, you didn't know that this would be a possibility and it just is now. So that's
0: fine. And frankly, there's less opportunities for young theater people to direct and produce and playwright. Like there's just not as many like opportunities in that way. Mm -hmm. And also I had a lot of, professional people in my life, you know, as I was getting ready to apply for college, audition for college, who, you know, sort of sat me down and they were like, can you imagine yourself being anything other than an actor? And if the answer to that question is yes, don't do what you're about to do. So I kind of felt like it is this. And then I ended up getting into NYU, getting into Ithaca College, And I went to Ithaca College, actually, instead of NYU, because I was placed in the Playwrights Horizon studio at NYU, which, ironically enough, gives a whole holistic look at what it means to be a theater artist. And in retrospect, it would have been great for me. But I got this sense of like, I don't want to take a directing class. I don't want to learn about writing. Like, I want to be an actor. I want to go to this really intense conservatory. And very quickly, that was not the right place for me. Um, You know, they... At the time, they were a cut program. So they started with 15. They cut down to, they said there wasn't a number, but they cut down to like 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was pretty hard to type. As I said, I'm 6'5". At the time, I was a bigger dude, but I was also really soft at heart. And they were having me do these scenes of like, like brutal, like, like like, dudes, you know? And yeah. that is not <laughs> not me at all. <laughs> so I ended up transferring after my sophomore year and I got into NYU again, but this time I got placed in the experimental theater wing. And that's where I ended up going and doing and finishing my undergrad. And mm. that place just changed my world. It made me a much stronger actor because it, they focus on physically-based acting, Grotowski and Meigsner, mostly stronger on the Grotowski stuff, on more of an outside-in approach than like an inside-out approach. And that just really clicked with me. And they also have a really strong focus on creating your own work not necessarily playwriting but like getting together with a group of like-minded artists and making I'm mm-hmm. collaborating with yeah. like weekly projects and the final projects and it really expanded my mind and I met my co-artistic director James at NYU I was one of the actors in his senior thesis project we became fast friends and fast forward 10 years later we run this theater company together
1: yeah that's awesome and, you know, something else I was going to say about that college experience was that it's actually good to get exposed to all those different things, because even if you do only end up being an actor, those other things help you, like get, learning, getting exposed to what a director is doing and what a playwright is doing would
0: ultimately help an actor be a better actor. I mean, I am a better actor because I've been a director and I'm a better director because I was an actor for so long. Right.
1: And it only makes sense. I feel like there's so many examples now for young people of people who are multi-hyphenates. I mean, that's sort of the thing now. And I feel like the drive now for many would probably be to be a multi-hyphenate more than just to be any one thing, because there's so many people who are successful who it seems like that's the climb, like you start acting and then you start producing and maybe you start writing and directing, or maybe you were kind of doing some of that all along. And that's such a thing. I mean, I saw something about Ryan Reynolds earlier and like he's, I know he's, I'm sure he's not seen as like this auteur, but at the same time, he's writing a lot. He's writing a lot of that
0: stuff well, that Or Bradley Cooper, on. you know? Yeah, but yeah. Got his start on stage, got known for The Hangover. And wrote and directed A Star is Born, which I loved, you know, learned how to Mm -hmm. play the piano and like did all of those things. And I think you're right. There are so many more examples, especially in the film and TV industry, but also in the theater industry. Mm -hmm. But a big thing that I think has changed, especially since I was starting, is the, the accessibility of making your own content. I mean, when I was hanging out with my friends and we wrote like a little short film that we wanted to do. We had to go buy cassette tapes for the camcorder and then transfer those to my dad's like ancient computer and hope that he wasn't trying to make phone calls with the dial up while we were, you know what I mean? And now it's, (laughs) there's a a cinema camera in everyone's pocket and all of these platforms to share your work. And so it's just, the access is there. And I think that that's nothing but good. Right. I You know, I also
1: wonder you know, how it'll look in the future. Like, will it, will the pendulum swing in the other way where people want to be hyper focused on one thing? But I feel like we have broken through to an era of really good work being made again, because I think there was like a commerce, let's just make content sort of thing going on. And, you know, obviously that's still going to be a thing on social media but I mean, this was a pretty good year for movies. Last year was a pretty good year for
0: movies. Uh, it's this year has really, really done it for me. I was actually mm-hmm. on a selection committee for the SAG Awards this year. Oh, cool! For the for the TV shows, which I I liked because they gave me free access to all the TV shows. But it's impossible to watch oh in, in seasons of like a hundred TV shows, <laughs> right? Um, But I've been a member of SAG since 2015. And what they do is, that's really great, is they give you access to all of the movies and TV shows that end up being nominated. So my wife and I, who really got into movies during the pandemic, like in 2020, we watched 300 movies. Wow. That's what we did. We were both unemployed artists. We had nothing else to do. So we watched 300 movies. We kept track of all of them. And I had to say, like, this year, I really think there have been some... Incredible movies, yeah. I, I just, just watched American Fiction, which blew. I loved my it. Mind. I he loved it. Loved that movie.
1: Yeah, that movie was so good. And I, I don't know what chance it'll have this year because, like, you have Oppenheimer <laughs> and nominated was such a big thing, and Barbie was such a big thing. But I, I did love American Fiction. There's a thing that I was talking about with friends the other day that I'm really annoyed by, and it's when people say all Hollywood does is make Marvel movies. They don't make small, dramatic movies anymore. And I said, well, how are they nominating dramas every year for the Oscars? And they, they nominate up to 10 now. Like, that wasn't always a thing. <laughs> for a long time in my life, they were only nominating five. And yeah. now they're nominating 10. So I don't know how we can say there aren't any dramas all of a sudden. And I do understand that a studio is thinking tent poles like a Marvel movie, but they are still making dramas. And then the, when the Oscar nominations come out, those same people who are complaining about how everything's are, everything's a superhero movie, they'll say, well, I haven't seen any of these movies. Why don't they nominate stuff that people have seen? Well, I'm sorry, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> like You cannot say that they aren't nominating dramas And they're only making movies like Marvel movies and then not watch the dramas they make.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I definitely agree. I mean, I feel the same way about like theater, honestly, which is like there (laughs) is a place for those like bread and circus movies, right? Mm -hmm. I love them. When I see a good superhero movie, I love that. When I see (laughs) a Mission Impossible, like I have a a great time. I love like a good action movie or a a sort of like big budget thing. What I think happens is, unless you're in the industry or a a film person who enjoys like cinema, it can be really hard to find those movies. Like they don't make it like, and I am in the industry. I'm in the union. I have a lot of friends who watch a lot of movies and without fail, the nominations will come out and I'll go, what are these movies? And I watch like like a mad dash to, to watch them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, when did this, when did this come out? This came out in March? Like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't me by. So I do, I understand, like, you know, the bottom line and making money and all that stuff. But, like, it doesn't cost them a lot to make these movies. And I do think the, like, cultural capital that would come from promoting them more yeah, would would be huge. Because right. I think that there's this trend of... I don't know if dark comedy is the right word, but I feel like there's this new genre that is neither comedy nor drama, Right, like, like poor things or like American fiction. Like yeah. it looks funny and definitely satire mm-hmm. um, or like poor things had funny moments, but was super dark, mm-hmm. but is not a like Killers of the Flower Moon drama and right. is not a Barbie comedy. You know, it's also right. Kind of- about like the tv show the bear i was just about to
1: mention the bear when we've talked about it a lot in the pop talk episodes of this podcast but (laughs) it's something that i say is a comedy but i understand why people feel like
0: it's not but because it it does ride this line it's almost a new genre it's just like everything i guess it's not binary anymore right like it's just funny or just dark like they're we live in a crazy time where things are no longer black and white. And I think that the media that's being made is reflecting that. Right. Yeah.
1: It's almost like they need to call it a comdramedy or something. <laughs> they just make up a whole <laughs> new word. And like the bear and like the comdromedy. I mean, it is sort of like there is this, that complaint really started back with Orange is the New Black. Because mm-hmm. people were saying, well, and Nurse Betty, where people are like, this is really a drama fully. And then there's one quirky character that doesn't make it a comedy, which I, I get, but with the bear, at least it has that Chicago style of improv where they're not going for the joke, like a typical comedy, but it is a humor piece. And there are funny things that they are trying to essentially do, but a lot of things have really blurred the lines. Because you think of the Sopranos? Like the Sopranos had a lot of funny stuff in it, but it was also very much a drama. (laughs) <laughs> so i don't know what it is <laughs> maybe that's like they have two category or multiple two new categories whereas if it's on the comedy side of a comedy drama it's a com dramedy and if it's on
0: the drama side it's dramedy. maybe just dramedy yeah i mean if they can create the what blockbuster of the year category i think they can figure this out <laughs> yeah for sure
1: it is it is inter- and I, I actually i, I do want to point out too that i agree that there is something annoying about not knowing about these a lot of these movies until the, the Oscar season, right? Like when those nominations come out, because it's all just based on capitalism. It's, Oh, it's the holidays. It's the summer. So we need our tent pole, big movies that are, we hope make a billion dollars. And then when the Oscar season starts, that's when they they utilize that to promote their prestige pieces, and that's when we start hearing about past lives and Anatomy of a Fall. It's like, why didn't you talk about this before? I I wanted something like I was in the mood for this in June. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting place, <laughs> but I do think the criticism should be towards the M.O. of how they promote this stuff and not necessarily whether or not they're making it. So I'll I'll only really criticize the people who know that movies like Past Lives are out and then they disregarded watching it and then also complain that everything is a superhero movie. It's like, well, there's stop. nothing the blockbusters. Right. It's like, well, you keep going to the blockbusters. So you're telling the market that you want that. So... Right. If you want them to make more of something else, go watch that stuff. Like, make it a point to watch that in the theater, and they will definitely adjust. But until then, <laughs> it's gonna be the way it is, and I'm fine with both existing. I don't like, yeah, I like the I Avengers it. movies. So,
0: me too. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I just right. I will be kept abreast, I guess, of everything that's right. Out.
1: Well, there's just so much content, especially when you get to the TV. There's so much stuff out there. You mentioned uh, a little bit ago that you, you being 6'5 and you were stand-in. So I was wondering if there was a particular actor that you were a stand-in for a lot because, you know, there aren't a whole lot of actors who are 6'5. So first
0: of all, I lied a lot and said that I was 6'3. That is still tall for film. For a while, I was Ansel Elgort's stand-in. Okay. I stood in for him on The Goldfinch. I stood in for him on some of West Side Story. And then I was a stand-in for three seasons on the TV show City on a Hill, set in Boston, shot in New York. Um, uh, and I stood in for, I don't even know the guy's name, but I stood in for him for years. And that was nice because it was like a reliable job. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Veep. Yeah, yeah I stood in for Jonah. Oh yeah, um, he, he came to New York. He's a and tall shot. guy. Yeah, yeah, but he's like three inches shorter than me. He's not actually that tall, and I love deep, so I was like a little starstruck. And then I was like, wait, he's not that as tall
1: as it seems. And they yeah. always
0: make fun of him for being a giant. Like, what does that make me? Does that make me like a super giant? Like,
1: yeah, six yeah. two is is tall, maybe
0: six three. But, but like, like, I was surprised how much taller than him I was. Considering in the show they make it seem like he's like, you know, wow, yeah, I, I guess feel like. That's tall.
1: Yeah. I mean, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is tiny. Yeah, <laughs> So
0: I guess next there. <laughs> so for like a couple of years there, I was the go-to white guy over 6'1 stand-in. My first stand-in gig actually, so the way it works is like you usually get started by if you're a background actor mm-hmm. and they need like a utility stand-in, they'll sort of go to the background and be like, hey, has anybody stood in before? And you get pulled. And so I did that once, I got pulled, it was super easy. And I got contacted by casting and they were like, Hey, are you free to stand in for Daredevil, the second season? Uh, Are you free to stand in on Daredevil on Tuesday? And I was like, Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. And they were like, Have you stood in before? I mean, technically I had, but not really. But I said, Yes. Mm -hmm. And I show up to set and they were using me as like a utility, which means that you stand in for multiple people. So I show up and they're doing a really intense fight scene for the entire first two thirds of the day where like a ninja, Breaks into Daredevil's apartment and then Electra like kills the ninja with an air. Like it was really intense. And so yeah. the stunt holder came up to us and he showed us a rehearsal and was like, one time, walked through and he was like, all right, guys, you got that. And the guy who was Daredevil's stand in, who was his all the time stand, was like, all right, I'm good to go. And I was like, no. He was like, fine, fine. I showed you one more time. Showed me the thing. And then I walk in there and I am standing in for a five foot seven Asian man. So I had to do. <laughs> this entire stunt scene on my knees for like wow. 7 hours and then at the end of the day i was standing in for a stick but he only had one scene so i don't know i don't know what <laughs> messed up that they called me in to do this but that was my like intro to being a stand in was standing in for a ninja on my knees getting the crap beaten out of me
1: wow that's wild did they at least give you some pads for your knees they did give me pets. They did give me pets.
0: Okay. <laughs> oh, and I was a stand in for that guy from Workaholics, the, the like Swedish guy. On yeah. Their- yeah. Mm-hmm. I stood in for him on that that project about the like woman who lied about being rich, but that got <laughs> shut down because of COVID. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. You know, there aren't a ton of really tall people. I mean, I mean, Tom on su- Succession is probably a few inches shorter than you and then the cousin on why am i blinking on his name well he is also tall he's taller than tom so those, I are, it's, that, those are the like, two
0: guys why i mostly do theater like and honestly like a lot of my professional work has been filmed like i was in search party i was mm-hmm. in a couple episodes of law and order mm-hmm. um, but most of my work comes from theater because if the person they're putting you next to is average height like they just it makes problems for Film yeah. people sometimes, yeah. and so I find that like, you know, I audition a lot. I've got an agent who gets me great stuff, but sometimes they're just like, "Well, he's too tall." I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, I mean they've they've got to get you on the MCU bandwagon because there are enough tall people there. You get you can stand next to Chris Pat Pratt and Chris Hemsworth,
0: yeah, and it'll exactly. work. Exactly.
1: <laughs> let's let's put that out in the ether. Like, let's get him in right. there. <laughs> uh, so. Before we get to talking about you being a playwright, let's talk about some of the TV stuff that you've done and and how that transpired. So you were saying you had done some outside of the art world work and you decided you were solely going to do creative endeavors. What kind of place were you in? Because I think there are a lot of people who want that to just exclusively be able to work in the world of arts and entertainment. So where were you to where you felt confident that you could do that?
0: I mean, I kind of think that I had a parallel path. I graduated school. I had about a year of auditioning and I was in a bunch of shitty play readings mm -hmm. and I like, it was not great. And sort of thought to myself, okay, if I want to be in a shitty play, like I want it to be mine or one that my friend made that I had a friend that I had a, a, a hand in putting together, you know? Mm-hmm. So it started this company with a bunch of friends. And so that was sort of one road, but you know, we were 23, 24. We didn't have any money to pay ourselves. So we were, we were making our work, which was exciting. And people were coming to see it and we were beginning to have a name for ourselves, but we didn't get paid until year six or year oh, wow. five. And so when we were the actor's, We didn't get paid. We didn't get paid for the producing. We didn't get paid for any of the writing, any of the directing, any of the stuff. The only thing we got paid for was if we toured, the company would cover our room and board. But we still didn't get a salary as it were. So I had to work, basically. You know, I was still auditioning, and I got my union card by being in the movie The Finest Hours when I was in college. Uh, Mm -hmm. It shot in Boston- I had a relationship with like Boston casting from being a kid who went in there all the time Mm -hmm. ended up doing five days on set. I got my union card. I'm in that movie. And I joined when I was 22. I actually worked as a spotlight operator at the big apple circus to pay for it. And so because I joined the union, I was able to do background work at the union pay scale, which is, is okay. It's pretty good. I mean, when I started, it was, 157 for eight hours and that was 2015 and now it's up to like I don't know I don't really do that work anymore but it went up five dollars a year every year Uh, but you really start to make money when you hit the overtime you know time and a half after eight double time after ten penalties if they don't feed you you know so right out of college I worked I forget what the movie was called but it was like 15 overnight shoots in a row Mm -hmm. and I made like eight thousand dollars which was the most money I would ever made in my life at that oh, point yeah. for any one project. And so I, I was doing the background thing also because you don't need to commit. So it allowed me to travel. It allowed me to go on tour when we got to, you know, we had a show that we were taking to the off West end and I got to just sort of pick up and go without any responsibility to like a boss. And then from doing background, I started standing in and the, the company was growing and I actually got the job on search party. It started as a background job. I played the, one of the brothers of the main character, Mm -hmm. but the other two brothers were speaking parts. Mm -hmm. So it was three speaking parts and me. And the thing about being background is you can't say even a word, right? (laughs) So they would talk to me because it was a lot of improv. They would talk to me and I'd be like, "Mm." (laughs) in one of the episodes, they gave me a girlfriend who was a speaking part and she would talk to me and I'd be like, so they ended up turning it into a bit and they brought the family back a lot. And it was like, I was on my phone. I became this (laughs) incel weird brother thing because they had to justify the fact that I'd been on like eight episodes but hadn't said a word over five seasons. (laughs) And then in the final season, in the final time that the family was there on set, they were like, We're going to have you say something. And it was a really nice sort of like, thank you for like, frankly, the years of underpay and unrecognition. But ultimately, that was my first speaking part on television. And from there, like, allowed me with my agent to like go in because now I was credited. Like, I couldn't think tell people that I was the brother because you, you're not mm-hmm. supposed to put background jobs on your resume. And it's oh, right. So if you looked me up, you'd never know that I was playing the brother of the lead character <laughs> in like two episodes a season <laughs> so I can finally put it on my resume and credit it. So all of that is to say, I just needed more money. So I was catering. I am big and I'm clumsy and I'm bad at it. So I hated it. And they treat you like shit. Like yeah. everyone is so mean to you when you cater. And then I started bartending, and I really liked that. I also did a bunch of other random jobs. Like, I used to take an old guy in the Upper East Side to Harlem to listen to jazz concerts. I worked a job, like, plugging in phones at Rutgers University, like, chasing oh, over all their old phones to new phones, and it was 35,000 phones. Like, I did a <laughs> bunch of crazy jobs. I was a friend for rent, where you could, like, rent me to hang out with you. He oh, yeah, tried to rent me to be his best man at his wedding, and I was like, dude, you... I'm, I'm not going to do that. Like, <laughs> I can't. Well, all of that is to say, when the pandemic came around, there was sort of the, the influx of uh, unemployment money and sort of the, the relief money. I, you know, I just sort of thought to myself, like, I have this theater company. We've done some exciting things. We're sort of at the five-year mark where a lot of our mentors have said, like, you know, at five years, it's either going to happen or it's not, and you're going to know. And at that point, right around five years, I cold called the head of the Queens College theater department. And I was like, I noticed that you had a company in residence before. Are you still doing that? We want to we be your company in residence. She was like, we're not doing that, but we need someone to teach experimental theater. Do you guys want to do it? And so that's how I started my teaching career. And getting in with Queens College, starting to teach with my colleague, James, really changed the game for us. From there, we got a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. We got a grant from the Cultural Development Fund, a three-year funding commitment of $35,000 every three years. Mm-hmm. We got a design enhancement grant. We started getting residencies. So things started to move. And so coming out of the pandemic, as I said, I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm in my late 20s, moved to this city to do this stuff. I did not move here to be a caterer. Like I could do Anything else, anywhere else, and it would be much easier. Like mm-hmm. if I'm going to be here, let me do it. And so mm-hmm. I will say, like, not everything I do is creative, but it is at least involved in, in, involved in the art world. So yeah. I'm this grant writer for Chicken Shed NYC, two days a week. I run my theater company. I'm getting paid to do that, like a small stipend now. Mm-hmm. Uh, our operating budget's like sixty thousand dollars a year at this point. I do outbound fundraising for MCC Theaters. I'm talking to folks on the phone. At you know, I'm coming up three years there in in uh, March. And I will say that job also really changed my life because I can do it from home. Mm-hmm. I work 10 hours a week mm-hmm. um, and because I'm good at it and it's hourly plus commission. I, I make enough money to pay my rent every month and I only awesome. have to work 10 hours a week. And that has allowed me to do the artistic stuff. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I'm also the festival coordinator for Frigid New York. So I run all of their festivals throughout the course of the year. We've got a 47 show festival coming up in April. Mm -hmm. um, That's across three venues. So I just sort of like looked for these opportunities that honestly would not have been doable pre-pandemic because I would not have been able, like I was working at MCC until three minutes before I talked to you, you know? (laughs) That wouldn't have been possible to be in Hell's Kitchen and then come down. Like (laughs) the the changing of Zoom has really allowed me to cobble together all Uh of these. Things so that I'm involved in the theater and arts landscape in a myriad of ways, from administration to financial support to fundraising Mm -hmm. and now educating. I'm on the adjunct faculty at Marymount Manhattan College, taught my first class yesterday. Awesome. Congrats. Thank you. And have this theater company that I am just like unbelievably proud of. My colleague, James, my co artistic director, and I like, we speak the same language, we're interested in the same things, and I think we're doing work that. Uh, it's not really being done in the same way by a lot of folks out there. And that is my main artistic outlet. Yes, it's plays that I write. It's also plays that I act in. It's also mm-hmm. stuff that I just produce and up- uplift other folks. And it's also community events and it's teaching and it's advocacy. So that is my main sort of outlet. And then I still have an agent and I'm doing like three or four auditions a week. So awesome. it's, a, it's, it's a lot, but I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's a
1: lot, but it doesn't feel like something that's going to burn you out because it's all stuff you enjoy doing. I mean, you know. I was much
0: more exhausted getting paid 15 an hour to carry around trays for rich people. Like, that was literally exhausting. Yeah. And I worked less,
1: but. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're mentally not doing as much in a job like that. And it's not that it's it's not digging a ditch so it's not like it's physically taxing the way that is and honestly you know working seven hours on your knees for (laughs) trying to do a stunt is pretty taxing (laughs) but it is a little soul crushing to do jobs where they aren't respecting you and treating you like crap like that is what makes it exhausting
0: and honestly the thing about standing in i i really liked it i was good at it Mm-hmm. I understood how it worked. I got to read a lot, which I love. Like I read like two books a week because there was a lot of downtime. Awesome. But I was this close to the thing that I actually wanted to be doing. I was yeah. literally a breath away from them turning on the cameras. And the moment before they did, I walked off set, you know? Yeah. I was like, that is actually depressing me. Oh, yeah. Okay, me, that's fair. Even though I'm good at it, even though I have friends mm-hmm. who I work with and I look forward to, I am an in- literally one breath away from the thing that I actually want to do. Not that yeah. I really want to do TV and film, but that's where the money is. And at least that's still acting. But like mm-hmm. that part of it, I was like, I don't want to be that close anymore if I'm not going to be doing the thing.
1: Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I was thinking from the standpoint of the uh, catering, which is, you know, people need caterers. Cater- I know I, I've, I've, I did it in college a little bit. And there are a ton of nice people who do it. But the people who are in charge can be real crappy. And we've all seen that. I, I thankfully didn't experience that in college. But, yeah, you know, we all know that that happens. And that stuff is rough. But, yeah, I also get when you're close to it and still can't be it. And it's like, oh, is this getting me further? It's, it's one thing when it's, like, outside of the world. And it's like, I know this is not helping me get forward in any way. It's just, I feel like uh, I'm just a a cog in a machine that doesn't benefit me at all. But when it's that situation where you are so close to it, it maybe can help you because who knows, but at the same time.
0: But then ultimately you get a (laughs) reputation for being a stand-in and people stop seeing you as an actor.
1: Right, right. That's a weird thing too when people, (laughs) it's
0: like, yeah, but I've done all this
1: work. It's like, ah, uh, no, I still just see you this one way now. It's like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> it's an odd. I mean, it's interesting that people can break free of that because um, Bill Hader was a PA for a long time and yeah. made his way in front of the camera and then also behind the camera. And, you know,
0: that that's not a lot of people's rise. I mean, Brad Pitt started as a background actor. Oh, wow, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, you can see him as like a... Weirdly enough, a background actor being a caterer in some <laughs> movie. So let's talk a
1: little bit about your playwriting and how that
0: manifested. So, my mom is a novelist. Oh, cool. And I, when I was growing up, I was and still am like pretty severely dyslexic. And so, never really saw myself as a reader or as a writer. I was pretty averse to that. But when I got to college and started, reading for fun that really changed i also did a lot of of tutoring and and sort of like mental remapping work to help me literally be able to read and then once i was able to enjoy it more got into that and so all of that is to say that when i got to nyu we had to make stuff all the time all day at the experimental theater wing and started like writing five minute i would even call them plays five minute pieces that we were sort of writing as groups and then i took a playwriting class because i had to take some sort of elective it was there i was beginning to get interested in creating my own work and it just sort of like opened my mind to the fact that i like could do this i knew i knew i know how plays work i've mm-hmm. been in so many plays i've worked on so many plays like i know how they work i just hadn't sort of created one of my own. Mm-hmm. And then I was in, you know, in these classes where I was improving and making all this work with people. It felt like the natural next step to then like sit down and write something mm-hmm. as I had to for my class. Um, and then the thesis project in your second year at the Experimental Theater Wing is called the Second Year Project, where basically you have to write and perform a two-minute play. Uh, sorry, a 10-minute play. Mm-hmm. So that was my final thing that I did at NYU um, and from there, just sort of started writing a bit. The first play that I wrote that got like performed outside of college was called Sources of Light Other Than the Sun. And it came about because I'm pretty obsessed with World War I. I came across this podcast by Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. And he does this six-part series on World War I. And fresh out of college, before I had really figured out what I was doing, I, w- I worked for Postmates. So I would be like walking around the city eight hours a day, every day. And I listened to this podcast and my mind was just sort of blown that I never learned about World War One in high school or college. Like they were like machine guns, trenches, but let's talk about the Nazis. Like they really skipped over World War I. And I later learned that, you know, that's because America never really wanted to get involved. There's a long tradition of not talking about World War One. That's why you don't really see World War One monuments around, they really wanted to kind of forget that it ever happened and that shows in our education system. Yeah. I could talk about that all day, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was sort of obsessed and I was reading all these books and this sort of historical fiction. And I found this Instagram account of this guy who goes to World War I battlefields today and goes into the bunkers. And they're like left as they were. There are cans, there are cigarette butts, there are boots, there's art like carved into the walls. And they basically had underground cities. And this idea just really haunted me of like living in darkness under the world while the world is being sort of turned upside down above you. And so I started to write this play that takes place in one of these underground bunkers where each scene has only one source of light in this underground city. So the generator has been knocked out. There's no light, and each scene has just one thing. So in one, it's the fireplace. In one, it's the end of people's cigarettes. In one, they're up on the watch, and it's the moonlight. And in the final scene, you know, it's the phosphorus of the artillery shells. And then sort of made characters that were an amalgamation of stories I had read. And then the sort of in-between scenes are, a combina- are-, are letters that... a a soldier's writing home to his loved one. And I sort of took a bunch of letters and chopped them together and put in my own writing. And then the final letter is actually a real letter that he writes and gives to his friend. And this is a real story of this guy who gave it to his friend and 10 minutes later got shot, shot and died. And the letter ended up getting home to his loved one. So that was the first play that I wrote that got produced. I submitted it to a festival, it got in, I had to self-produce it, but it was also the beginning of my journey with producing and Mm -hmm. also the start of my theater company because at the same time, my friend James had written a play about Princess Diana and that got into the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So we got a team together to work on both of those shows. We rehearsed my play for two weeks in July. We did it at the end of the month. The day it closed, the next day, we all flew to Scotland where Mm -hmm. he's from. We rehearsed for two weeks his play and then we did that (laughs) at the Edinburgh Fringe. And then that group of people, we were like, what did we just do this (laughs) Like, should we start a theater company? And we, do. and now it's just the two of us who run it. But that was sort of my beginning. And then I wrote a kid's musical called The Untitled Shape Show. Mm-hmm. That is, I had worked for the Missoula Children's Theater in college. And what they do so great is every week you go to a different town and you teach up to 60 kids an entire show in five days. And what they do is they put an adult on stage to sort of keep things going. And I was really inspired by that. So I wrote this play, that has professional actors, as well as young performers on stage. Um, and I, I use shapes and I talk about things that like really were hard for me as a kid, stress about testing. Mm. Bull- I was bullied relentlessly in middle and high school and, and wanted to talk about these things. And I got a friend of mine, this incredible folk musician, Will Davis, mm-hmm. uh, to write the music. And so we premiered that in Providence at the Providence Public Library in 2017 through my company. And then we ended up touring it to New York and Toronto and did a concert of it at the New York's New York International Fringe Club back in 2019. So that's another piece that I've done. And then most recently, I just co-wrote uh, a play about the Spanish Civil War that wow. premiered as a as a reading at the Brooklyn art house. History buff. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really I, mean, I, history. I love history. I really do. I'm just interested by like stories that I wasn't taught as a kid and finding about them myself. And so the work that I do with my company is also kind of the work that I do in my writing, which is source-based experimental plays, like plays that use real history. I mean, for this Spanish Civil War play, we spent 25 hours in the New York Public Library archives, the Tenement archives at NYU, and then create this play that is an amalgam... The characters are an amalgamation of people. We're not trying to say, okay, this is John Smith. This is who he was. This is what he did. It's more like this is... Walter, who's a character. And this character, Walter, is amalgamating the experiences of ten people that we read about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of the work that my company does, and therefore sort of the the writing that I do is, is source... I'd call it source-based experimental or source-based devised theater. Mm-hmm. That is so much stuff. And it's...
1: <laughs> and I... Just hearing you talk about the playwriting and then also the stuff that you were doing as artistic director and everything you know like the the two companies that you're you're working with and everything
0: I just don't know how you have the time I mean like I said I made this commitment to myself and this is what I've always loved and I I always wanted to be an artist but I like didn't always want to be a starving artist Mm -hmm. and I'm really fortunate to have had opportunities to have had like a wide array of backgrounds and, and jobs that have informed my ability to to do all this stuff and you know I didn't plan to be a producer or an artistic director in the first couple of years like we were self-taught like no one told us how to write grants no one told us how to make budgets or press releases or pitch decks or talk about your own work like I mean to go back to the panel that we are we were on it is so hard as an artist to talk about what you do yeah. it just is and so like all of those skills that I did mostly for my fun passion project Ended up sort of allowing me to do all of this other stuff that lets me, you know, pay my bills, live my life, mm-hmm. travel, and also get to make my work and work that interests me. So I feel very fortunate um, to have done that. Now, do I open my calendar some days and be like, "What <laughs> am I doing?" Like it's at the point where like I really don't know what I'm doing day to like I have to look. I don't know what I'm <laughs> doing today. To but we are getting ready. Actually, I would love to talk about this. We are getting ready to do our first main stage since before COVID. We'll be premiering it, I can't say where yet, but it's going to be at a venue in Long Island City in May. And it's this piece that we developed as a residency at Brick Lab and as part of the Artist at Home program at Me Too 580, the home of Theater Me Too. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called Third Law. The idea being every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And it is so different than everything I have talked to you about. It (laughs) is an interactive theatrical game that is trying to give the audience as much agency as possible over the work that they are consuming in front of them. After the pandemic, we really wanted to make something that could only be experienced in a room with people. So the idea of the show is that there's a bunch of circles projected on the floor with different numbers in them and so the whole space the audience can walk around and as the audience walks into the circles when the right number of people get into each circle it activates something and the the, the audience begins to realize that they have control over every aspect of what they're seeing one circle activates the lights one activates the sound one activates sort of the audio world the over the voiceovers and then one of them lets them cast the show so every wow. actor knows every line of the piece and at any moment if the right number of people stand in the right circle it's recast and they have to pick new people so you never know as an actor which of the two parts you're going to play wow so i'm really jazzed about that we're doing 30 performances in long island city in may
1: okay that sounds amazing we'll have to keep an eye out for
0: that Yeah, that's intriguing That is definitely different than like the history plays about the fascists. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, a lot of great stuff there for me. My take back is you can do it. Like go for it. You can do it and utilize what you know to help you help propel yourself. And then you will also learn new things. So whatever you don't necessarily know right now, you just start with what you do know and you can you can get ahead because you taught
0: yourself a lot early on, like you were saying. And I also think like, first of all, I definitely agree with that. And another thing I think is like, it's never, it's never too late, you know? Mm. And if there is a a project or an idea, like it's just going to live in your head until you try and do it. Yeah. And the worst that's going to happen is it, it will be out there, you know? And, and yeah. I think that like, it doesn't always have to be like, and now I'm going to try and get this to be performed at BAM. Like it's not <laughs> all, it doesn't have to be that like, You can start where you're at, like some friends together in your living room and be like, I wrote 15 pages of, I don't know, something. (laughs) Let's talk about this. Like that's how my first play started. I wrote 15 pages. I got some friends together and I was like, so what do you think? And they were like, yeah, what this character could, then they, you know, the feedback. And so I really think it is about just, just doing it, going for Mm -hmm. it. It doesn't matter, you know, it's never too late. Mm -hmm. And also, surrounding yourself not with like-minded people in terms of people who think the same way as you i would Mm -hmm. say like actually don't surround yourself with people who will just agree with you but surround yourself with people who you trust enough to actually tell you not no but you know no but or yes and or to actually (laughs) be The help that you need, right. Feedback,
1: actual, yeah, there was a a seminar I was at, or a a speaking engagement I was at, and someone said something I thought was really helpful. He was saying, he was an entrepreneur, but he was saying that a lot of business owners will say, I only listen to constructive feedback. And he said, no, listen to all feedback, like all criticism, because all of it is coming from somewhere. And maybe when you assess something, you realize that the person made some sort of mistake or they're just angry and they don't really have a valid point. They just want to yell about something and you can disregard that. But if someone is, is being mean about something that actually doesn't work in something you're making, then take the part that is going to be helpful to you to making it better. You can disregard the mean side of it. But if they're saying, hey, this doesn't work, then you still need to work on that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Couldn't agree
1: more. On the same wavelength. (laughs) So we're at the end of the episode and I want to get some tips on grant writing because I'm very interested in trying to get a grant or two and you've done a hundred a year um, for a little bit. So what advice would you give to someone so they can maybe hit the ground running when it comes to grant writing?
0: Yeah, I think the first is you have to do a close reading of the application guidelines. Mm. Starting with, are you eligible? I can't tell you how many grants I read that are just, they've spent so much time and it's actually a good application, but they're not even eligible for the opportunity. Yeah. And then look at the questions. Most grantors will say, okay, the question is artist statement. And then underneath, they'll be like, tell us X, Y, and Z. You know, they'll tell you. So a close reading of the application guidelines. If you have the opportunity to go to an info session, Mm -hmm. go to an info session. Mm. If you have the opportunity to email the grant officer with a question, do that. Because then they know your name. Then Mm. when they see your application, they're going to be like, oh, my God. That's Jason, who emailed me asking if buying a projector was one of the eligible costs. I remember him. (laughs) You know, it's a little something, but an opportunity to be a touchpoint with the grant officer, especially if you're talking about grants that are not paneled, that are just like selected. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of like a macro approach. I think in terms of the actual writing of the grant, more is not more. (laughs) Right. More is not more. Like, if they say it is 500 words that you have, that is, that is a maximum. Right. That doesn't mean they are expecting 500 words. It does not mean do 75 words. You know, you still tell your story. Mm-hmm. But more is not more, I've found. And because a lot of times, as you know, mm-hmm. people are reading a lot of these. Mm-hmm. And you might be at the front of the pack. Or if you're like my company, what will the neighbors say alphabetically? We're last (laughs) more likely than not. And how often will the person reading my grant have read a through Z or whatever, a through V before they've gotten to mine? How tired will they be? And then I think sort of the basics of any of anything, but especially grant writing for me are like who, what, where, when and why. If you Mm -hmm. can answer those five questions in two to three sentences or three to five sentences in a paragraph. You, you probably will have a, a strong chance at getting it. Like, yeah. is making the thing? Mm-hmm. What is the thing? When are you doing the thing? Where are you doing the thing? And then the harder one is why? Yeah. Because I'm an artist and I want to make art, welcome to the clock. <laughs> right, you know, not a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> I think the why is, why this piece now? Mm-hmm. Why this piece at this venue? Mm-hmm. Why this piece? with these people Mm -hmm. why this piece Um, sort of in this community and i think the community is a big part of it and that's also the who because the who Mm -hmm. is not just who is making the piece it's who is the piece serving right only because we want we want to know that artists are getting paid we want to know that artists are making their work but we also know that the people consuming the work are getting a something out of it. Mm-hmm. And it and it's also how do you measure that it's right. quantitative and it's qualitative right so the who what when where why and then if you really want to get into it the how yeah it's when you're talking about budgets right? right the final thing i would say is just always use the budget notes that is extra real estate for you to explain anything you want in your application in terms of money uh-huh. and always write your budget as if you're going to get this grant okay
1: that's awesome information I'm going back to like when I was reading applications for the, the grant panel we were on because there were some that were so long and I was like this feels like they're talking in circles and they're just answering one question and I was like I see the merit to this but I am getting bogged down just reading this one application and it It's not even just like, well, you've annoyed me, so I'm going to say no, because I would still give it good marks if it had merit. But it's not about like the mood so much of the person reading it, but are they able to take in the information? If they can easily take in the who, what, when and where and why and how of your pitch, then that's going to go a long way because that's what they're searching for. And when you're using too many words and you're you're. Talking in circles, and you're saying stuff that you kind of already said in another question, you end up just confusing someone's mind and making it hard for them to really follow what it is you are trying to do.
0: Yeah, I totally, I 100%. Like, you need to, you need an elevator pitch, really. Yeah. You need to be able to tell someone what your piece is in like 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I would say, and this took me a long time, is it is so much better to under promise and over deliver. When I first started writing grants, we'd be like, for $5,000, we're gonna take this show to every borough <laughs> in the city. And the grant organization would be like, you're just not. You're <laughs> not gonna do that. And so for this most recent At the Barricades, the Spanish Civil War play that we did, we asked for $5,000 from the Brooklyn Arts Council. Um, mm-hmm. And we just asked for it to do two weeks of rehearsal and two staged readings. Mm-hmm. That was it. And now we made a good argument for why the piece was worthy and why it would serve the community. But we were not like for $5,000, we're gonna mount a production of this play. First of all, the play was not ready. It Mm -hmm. needed a a staged reading. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's only $5,000. So we said, you're gonna give us 5,000. We have another 2,000, so that can let us do X, Y, and Z. Now we elevated it. It looked incredible. We got a great team of people and it it felt like more a staged reading but at its heart it was just a stage reading (laughs) he he got the full award that we asked for because we very clearly laid out what it was going to be Mm -hmm. what we were trying to do and how we were going to do it we were not trying to say we're going to rent a theater for two weeks and do this play that we haven't even written yet with all these actors that we're going to pay at a reason like no you can't do that
1: yeah that is a tough thing and then also like you said talking about yourself because why I want to do something and why it's important to me is not necessarily why it would be of value to others. And you got to see it from that other side for it to
0: really land. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well, there it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Sam. Jason, thank you for having me. What, what a fun little serendipitous connection. I love it.
1: That was an informative chat, so I hope you gained something out of that. And you can follow Sam on Instagram and Twitter at SamHoodAdrian. That cool interactive play he talked about, Third Law, being presented by What Will the Neighbors Say and Culture Lab LIC is coming out in May. So be on a lookout for that by going to wwtns.org or follow them on Instagram and Twitter at wwtns theater. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is, and follow me on Twitter at Jason Farr Jokes and Instagram at Jason Farr Picks. Also subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Until next time, be good to each other.